story you are about to hear is true. Attention, all true. She's alive. Alive! I can clearly remember going to see Transformers the movie as a kid. It was at the fourplex in my town, which was a Lowe's, and my friends and I had been talking about it since we had heard the first rumblings about it a few weeks earlier. We showed up early, like we usually did to play video games, and we bought our snacks about 10 minutes before the movie started. We went in there, we watched the little slideshow, and they played some old rock music. The lights dimmed, the movie started, and we were enthralled. We had been big Transformers fans. The toys, the cartoon, and the comic book. And now we had a motion picture. There were four of us there that day. I was seated at the end. That's where I like to sit in a movie theater at an end seat. And right next to me was one of my close childhood friends. It's all going really well until a traumatic moment happens in the film. And maybe I'll ruin the Transformers movie for people, but I hope many of you know this. But Optimus Prime dies in this movie. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was going to happen. As he dies, I suddenly feel very emotional. And despite my best efforts, I started to cry. I tried wiping them away rapidly, but they kept coming because Optimus Prime was dead and he was one of my favorite characters. Now crying in front of my friends was not a great idea. Mockery was a standard behavior in most of the kids I knew at the time. But an interesting thing happened. My friend, who sat right next to me, noticed I was crying and he gave me this look and then pushed me and said, get up, get up, get up. He walked me out of the theater. I'm still holding my popcorn and soda. We get out and he goes, are you crying? And I'm trying to wipe away my tears, holding these two things in my hand. And I decided I would lie, even though it was very obvious that I was crying. And I said, no, I'm not crying. And he said, you're obviously crying. And then he gave me this advice. Don't cry. You don't cry during this movie. Are you crazy? I said, I'm not crying. There's tears rolling down my face. And I'm telling him I'm not crying. He says, clean yourself up and then come back into the movie theater. So I went into the bathroom. I cried a little bit more, wiped the tears from my face, splashed some cold water in my face, made sure I was composed. It took about five minutes. And then I went back into the theater. My friend looked me over. Everything seemed okay. And we watched the rest of the movie. He never told anybody that I cried during the movie. And he never brought it up again. I'm not sure how my other friends would have reacted. In the past, even he had not always been kind when people showed emotion or acted in a way that was easy to make fun of. And so I kind of appreciate what he did in that instance. It was a little out of character and it made me be able to appreciate the movie more afterwards where we could talk about it instead of our whole bike ride home being a discussion about how I had cried when Optimus Prime died. My big question is how could they not feel emotion when Optimus Prime died? And if they didn't feel something in that moment, who were really the robots? On today's show, I'm going to talk to you about a movie that made me cry, Transformers the movie. We'll talk about the people who voiced the film, the people behind the camera, the people who made it. We'll talk about its reception, its soundtrack, its legacy, and much, much more. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Transformers the Movie is a 1986 animated sci-fi motion picture, and it is largely based on the Transformers television series, which of course is based on the Transformers toy line, which was a series of transforming robots from Hasbro. It would be written by Ron Friedman and directed by Nelson Shin. It had some great music and featured the voices of not only some of the original talent from the cartoon, but other stars who would join the cast. I'm going to start off by reading the Transformers the Movie box, and it is a red box from Family Home Entertainment. You can still find these on VHS out there. There's an evil new force in the universe, a monster planet that devours everything in its path, and it's headed for the small planet of Cybertron, where a unique race of transforming robots continues to fight a civil war, a war between good and evil that has raged for millions of years. The evil Decepticon Transformers, led by the maniacal Megatron, have sworn to crush their enemies, the Autobots. To this end, they have relentlessly pursued them across the galaxy, from planet Cybertron to planet Earth and back again. But the heroic Autobot Transformers and their courageous leader, Optimus Prime, are not easily defeated. Full-length animated feature, approximate running time, 86 minutes. So, a pretty good description of the film, although vague on details. If you were only watching the cartoon up to this point, which my friends and I did religiously, a lot of stuff that was going to happen in this movie was going to be a big surprise. Mostly the robotic carnage, but the plot is, I guess, kind of straightforward. We learned that there's this giant transformer called Unicron, who eats planets, and he is coming to Cybertron. The Autobots and the Decepticons have been fighting it out on Earth, and both Optimus Prime and Megatron are badly wounded. Optimus Prime will die, but before he does, he passes the Matrix of Leadership to Ultra Magnus. Meanwhile, Megatron is rebuilt as Galvatron. This new Galvatron goes after the surviving Autobots, and the Autobots are basically on the ropes. They get to Cybertron just as Unicron, that giant robot, is going to eat Cybertron, and the Autobot Hot Rod finds the Matrix and becomes Rodimus Prime. And with the power of the Matrix, he's able to destroy Unicron. Along the way, we meet lots of new characters, some of them I've named. But I want to bring it back to maybe the most important thing, the death of Optimus Prime. Now, this movie was produced at the same time that G.I. Joe the movie was being produced, and by the same group of people. To make the movies seem more powerful, they decided that they would kill off both of the leaders of G.I. Joe and the Transformers, so Duke would die in G.I. Joe and Optimus Prime in Transformers the movie. While the production of both movies was going on at the same time, Transformers was completed first, and when people saw Optimus Prime die, they were shocked, and they decided that Duke's death maybe didn't need to be permanent. If they were going to have such blowback on Optimus Prime, maybe not a good idea to kill Duke. Instead, they made it that he was in a coma. Now, if you think about it, had this been flipped and G.I. Joe had been released first and Duke died, maybe we would never have seen the death of Optimus Prime. And a lot of people thought this was a good idea. They wanted to make a statement. But the person credited with the majority of writing on the film, Ron Friedman, didn't like the idea himself. He looked at Optimus Prime as a father figure. He said, To remove Optimus Prime, to physically remove Daddy from the family, wasn't going to work. I told Hasbro and their lieutenants they would have to bring him back, but they said no and had great things planned. In other words, they were going to create new, more expensive toys. Now, the death of Optimus Prime was thought of early, and so they had to develop the reasoning behind it, and they didn't have the matrix of leadership thought out. 
And originally, he would have basically handed over his own essence to Ultra Magnus. Luckily, someone thought the idea of Optimus Prime sort of climbing out of his own body and into another Transformer might have been a little confusing, and they came up with the idea for this Matrix. Optimus Prime was not the only one to die in this film. They kill Ironhide, Prowl, Ratchet, Wheeljack, Windcharger, Megatron, Starscream, Thundercracker, Kickback, Bombshell, and many others. Now, in the film, Hot Rod is kind of the reason Optimus Prime dies, so it's kind of poetic that he would be the one to inherit the Matrix of Leadership, ultimately. But, I just want to say, I always thought he didn't feel guilty enough about it. He gets over Optimus Prime's death rather quickly. As it turns out, in earlier versions of the script, he felt a lot more guilt. They had to remove it to kind of make the movie move along. So that's pretty satisfying to know that at least the people who were writing the film thought about this a bit more, and that Hot Rod was not so callous. Now, before I get into more of this film, I just want to say, you read a lot of stuff online about movie production. And that means there's a lot of personalities, a lot of talented people, a lot of them taking credit for things, and a lot of conflict around whose story is true. It seems to change over time what's true, but the general idea of it is at least decipherable from everybody's stories. So take it all with a grain of salt. This is an understanding of the way that the Transformers came to be, and 10 years from now, we might have a different understanding. And 20 years after that, a different one, if we're still talking about the Transformers, which I think we will. Are you a fan of the Retros podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retros Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more. Feel good about yourself and make a difference in the world. Support the Retroist. So we wouldn't have had Transformers the movie without Transformers the television series, which began broadcasting in 1984. It, as well as the movie, were created to promote and sell the toy line, the Transformers. Hasbro really wasn't interested too much in what the plot of the film would be. Of course, they wanted it to be something that people would pay to see. But most important to them was that it had the characters that they wanted to merchandise in the film itself. That meant that the screenwriters had quite a lot of freedom, and there were lots of rewrites and other people who would add things to what Ron Friedman would do. They came up with some crazy ideas that were really violent, ways that Ultra Magnus would be killed, and as I mentioned, they did underestimate the death of Optimus Prime. Flint DeLay, who was the story consultant on the film, worked on the animated series, is quoted as saying, We didn't know that he was an icon. It was a toy show. We just thought we were killing off the old product line to replace it with new products. And they actually thought they would kill off the entire original toy line so that they could reboot them. And I'm really glad they didn't try to do that. So a little bit about the person credited with writing this film, Ron Friedman. Friedman was born in 1932. He's a television and film writer and producer. Worked on some real classics like G.I. Joe, the Marvel Action Hour, and of course the Transformers. He has written over 700 hours of episodic television on TV shows like Bewitched, Gilligan's Island, All in the Family, The Odd Couple, Happy Days, and The Andy Griffith Show. But to fans of the 80s, they'll probably know him for his work on G.I. Joe and the Transformers. And he's credited with creating the G.I. Joe television series and helping to develop the Transformers for television. He would write over 64 episodes of the Transformers. And over the years, he would be nominated for multiple Emmy Awards. One of the great things about Friedman 
is his insistence on bringing a female Transformer into the world of the Transformers. Now, I didn't think about this when I was a kid, but there were no female Transformers. And since the toy line was being marketed just toward boys, Hasbro didn't think it was important. But Ron Friedman wanted to have a female robot in the Transformers because, as he said, his daughter was a huge fan of the Transformers. And this would lead to a female Transformer, R.C., who would debut in the movie, and then other female Transformers would make their way into the show. Weirdly, even though R.C. was kind of a featured character in the film, they wouldn't make a toy for R.C. It would be decades before they would finally release a toy based on the design in this movie. But it happened eventually. As for the script itself, I had heard it described as a Frankenstein script filled with drafts and ideas from different people, and it was an incoherent beast that needed to be tamed. This leads to a lot of speculation amongst fans and some talks about lost ideas and lost scripts. Two people, Flint Dillay being one of them, and Jay Bacall would write a script of their own called The Secret of Cybertron. Some of that would eventually become part of the Five Faces of Darkness in the Transformers cartoon, but no script has ever been found that has their full movie on it. I would love to read that someday. The film was directed by Nelson Shin. Shin was born in 1939. He's an animation director. He founded Acom Productions in 1985, and that's based in Seoul, South Korea. His career started in the 70s, working for Depatty Freeling Enterprises and eventually Marvel Productions. There he would work on Spider-Man and his amazing friends and the Pink Panther films. Really, his claim to fame would be his studio work because Acom would work on legendary shows like Batman the Animated Series and, of course, The Simpsons. The budget of Transformers the movie was $6 million, which was pretty large if you based it on what was going on in the TV world. The thing is, because they were also concurrently working on the TV show, it wasn't easy to bring new resources in to work on both the movie and the TV show at the same time which contributes to the slow production schedule on this film. There is a great production timeline posted online. Just look up Transformers, the movie production timeline. People have done some great research. You can see when the first outline was delivered, when the different drafts of the film were done, when model sheets and storyboards were done, and when production started. There's not a lot of detail of what was going on, but it is interesting to see how a motion picture develops. A big change that would happen between the movie and the TV show was character design. A lot of the character design is credited right now to Floro Derry. In the show, you would base the characters that you would see on the toys, but the toy prototypes weren't available. And so new characters were designed for animation, and they would become the basis for the toys. So a little bit of a flip from the standard practice that had been going on. Ultra Magnus! The courageous Ultra Magnus is a born leader. We meet at last, Galvatron. And it will be the last time we meet. And Galvatron, this Ultra Magnus is sworn enemy! Transformers! Galvatron transforms from laser cannon to fighting robot! And Ultra Magnus from huge car carrier to Autobot commander! Transformers! More than meet the eye! The Transformers, each sold separately from Hasbro. Now, when you have a film with this many characters, you have a lot of people doing a lot of voice work. There were dozens of people who worked on this film just providing voices, but I'm going to try to go through some of them quickly that I think are notable and who you should know. Starting off with Peter Cullen, who voiced both Optimus Prime and Ironhide. 
born in 1941. Not only did he do voices for things like G.I. Joe and the Transformers, he worked on the Transformers Nemesis show, The GoBots, and was the voice of Venger on Dungeons and Dragons, Monterey Jack on Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, and many more. Cullen said that he created the voice of Optimus Prime by trying to pay tribute to his brother Larry, who had served in the U.S. Marine Corps. A lot of his mannerisms and the way he spoke is supposedly based on Larry. I also want to say he also sounds a lot like John Wayne, so I imagine Larry and John Wayne had a lot in common. We get a new character, Hot Rod, or Rodimus Prime, in the movie. He was voiced by Judd Nelson. Nelson was born in 1951. He's probably best known for his role as John Bender in the 1985 film The Breakfast Club, although he's worked in lots of other things. Corey Burton voiced Spike, Braun, and Shockwave. Born in 1955, he is prolific in his voice work, working on the Transformers and G.I. Joe. Michael Bell played a few characters in the movie Scrapper, Swoop, Bombshell, but probably best recognized not for his Transformers work, but as Duke from G.I. Joe. He also voiced Lance from Voltron and a bunch of others. Scatman Crothers played Jazz. Scatman was born in 1910, passed away in 1986. This would be his last film before he passed away. He was a musician, actor, singer, really fun character actor. You might remember him from The Shining. He was also in Twilight Zone, the movie. In the animated world, he was Scat Cat in Disney's The Aristocats and the title character of Hong Kong Fooey, the number one super guy. There's some great stories about Scatman Crothers, even in relation to Transformers the movie. He would bring his guitar to recording sessions, and he would perform while they were waiting to record their own parts. Sounds like a fun guy. Casey Kasem played Cliff Jumper. Casey Kasem was born in 1932, passed away in 2014 as a voice actor, best known as Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, although he voiced lots of other characters. Outside of that, he is probably best known as a radio DJ, because he was the voice of American Top 40 for many, many years. Chris Lotta did Starscream. Born in 1949, he passed away in 1994. A great screechy voice. If Starscream sounds familiar, it's probably because you're a G.I. Joe fan and you might recognize him as the voice of Cobra Commander, but it doesn't stop there. Early on, he was the voice of Mr. Burns and Mo the Bartender on The Simpsons. Bringing in some new talent, we had Eric Idle as Rekgar. Eric Idle, best known as a member of Monty Python, was born in 1943. He has famously said he knew nothing about the Transformers and was flown out to do his lines. He found the lines very weird, and there are some weird lines for his character. He has never seen the movie, and he said he makes a practice of not seeing any of his movies. But I remember at the time being a Monty Python fan and being pretty excited about Eric Idle being in the film. Susan Blue voiced R.C., the first female Autobot. Susan Blue was born in 1948. She's done lots of great voices in animation. I will always remember her as Granny Smurf in The Smurfs. Robert Stack voiced Ultra Magnus. Great voice. Born in 1919. He passed away in 2003. Old TV fans will know him as Elliot Ness on The Untouchables and as the voice and host of Unsolved Mysteries. Clive Revel, who had a small role, but I like him, so I'm going to mention him was born in 1930. He played Kickback. He was originally the voice of Emperor Palpatine in The Empire Strikes Back and would later be replaced. A great voice actor, and he appeared in lots of things. Don Messick voiced Scavenger. Not a huge role in the film, best known as the voice of Scooby-Doo. John Mashita Jr. voiced Blur. If you know John Mashita, it is probably from the Micro Machines. He's the fast-talking guy. 
He was in a lot of 80s stuff. And in addition to speaking fast, he's also a great voice actor. Frank Welker would play Soundwave, Megatron, Rumble, Frenzy. Welker was born in 1946, a legendary voice actor, starting out in the Scooby-Doo franchise as Fred Jones, and then would go on to voice characters in G.I. Joe, Inspector Gadget, the real Ghostbusters, many, many others. He was famous for doing animal sound effects as well. So very often, if you hear an animal sound effect in a cartoon, there's a good chance that Frank Welker could have stepped in and done that. He happens to voice my favorite Decepticon, Soundwave. We're getting toward the end here, so bear with me, because just some people I want to name. We had Victor Caroli as the narrator. Caroli has a great voice. Leonard Nimoy would voice Galvatron. Leonard Nimoy, born in 1931 passed away in 2015. Amazing, talented guy, best known for his work on Star Trek, although he was a great director and character actor doing lots of other things. Finally, the Hollywood legend Orson Welles voiced Unicron. Welles was born in 1915, passed away in 1985. This was at the very tail end of Orson Welles' career. This would be the last thing he would do They say he was in a pretty bad state at the time trying to record his dialogue, and just a couple of days later he would pass away. There had been speculation that he didn't finish his recording, but over time there's been confirmation that it's all him up there, although they had to do a lot of editing to get what they needed from him at the time. He was legendarily difficult to work with, but could be very funny as well. He is quoted talking about the recording of the Transformers. He said, You know what I did this morning? I played the voice of a toy. Some terrible robot toys from Japan that changed from one thing to another. The Japanese have funded a full-length animated cartoon about the doings of these toys, which is all bad outer space stuff. I play a planet. I menace somebody called something or other. Then I'm destroyed. My plan to destroy whoever it is is thwarted, and I tear myself apart on the screen. Not completely accurate, but just as condescending as I'd hope Orson Welles would be with whatever subject he did not want to deal with. Rounding out the cast... We'll go really fast. Norman Eldon, Jack Angel, Greg Berger, Roger C. Carmel, Regis Cordick, B.J. Davis, Arthur Burghardt, Walter Edmiston, Paul Eiding, Ed Gilbert, Buster Jones, Dan Gilvazen, who played Bumblebee, probably should have talked more about him. Stan Jones played Scourge, probably should have talked about him as well. David Mendenhall, Hal Rail, Neil Ross, and finally, Lionel Stander. And more Autobots join Optimus Prime. Cup reminds me of the battle on Beta 4. Hot Rod. Watch my smoke. Blur. And these are the new Decepticons, the evil Cyclonus. I'm spying for a fight. And Scourge. No one escapes the sweet. But soon a new Autobot leader will arrive. Introducing Rodimus Prime. No one can take on the Decepticons like Rodimus Prime. Transformers. The Transformers each sold separately from Hasbro. The film came out on August 8th, 1986, on 990 screens. My town had one of those screens. It would make $1.7 million on opening weekend, opening in 14th place. It would go on to make $5.8 million, so not a big success. They had a lot of hope for these films that they were producing, especially because movies were booming at the time. The summer of 86 saw a lot of great movies. Fortunately, over time, it would become a cult classic. It would eventually even get a re-release in 2018 for one night of screenings. And it was popular enough that their initial number of theaters they were going to show it would more than double. So this has some fans. If you did happen to see it in the theater at the time, you were watching it and it was advertised in widescreen. The film itself was animated in full screen aspect ratio. So to show it 
in the widescreen aspect ratio, they would chop the top and bottom off the picture. So there would be more picture visible when the film was released on video and DVD, which confused a lot of people because we were very used to the opposite happening, where we'd want to film in widescreen and then they would use pan and scan to crop out the sides. We weren't used to them cropping out the top or the bottom. So what else was playing at the time? I printed out my local listing from the time of what movies were playing. And this was that weird time when we had a fourplex and a sixplex. We'd eventually get an eightplex, but the four was still showing and then the sixplex. So this was showing at our fourplex, although they didn't list it as playing in the fourplex in the movie theater. They would on an ad and I went and saw it there. So what was playing with it were Aliens 2, which I saw, Stand By Me, One Crazy Summer, and Friday the 13th Part 6. A great run of films, and I'm pretty sure I was seeing all of them. Over at the sixplex, you had Ruthless People, Howard the Duck, Back to School, Running Scared, Heartburn, and Nothing in Common. Quite a lineup. Looking at the ads, the Transformers is tied for the largest ad in the paper, along with Stand By Me. And then you get A Fine Mess, which is a Blake Edwards film with Ted Danson and Howie Mandel, A Great Mouse Detective, Ruthless People, The Karate Kid Part Two all about the same time. Oh, there's Heartburn. Oh, and Flight of the Navigator. Great film. But this is great. There's a running scared ad here. And the ad itself is Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal in their bathing suits, kind of flexing humorously, I guess, in front of a palm tree. I want to live in a world where shirtless Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines is how you sell a movie. I feel like that wouldn't happen nowadays. I am surprised that a few of these films aren't playing in my theater. I guess we had limited number, and I do think they would cycle out. Oh, this is great. There's an ad in the movie section for the Ground Round that I used to go to. I loved the Ground Round as a kid when my mom would take me. And on Friday and Saturday that week, you have an evening with the Merlin Band, and it's spelled M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Band. And the Merlin Band has a wizard that looks like Merlin as their symbol. Sadly, my family didn't go to that. Reviews for the film wouldn't appear in the newspaper this week. It wouldn't be till Monday that they would finally review the film. And it's not Lou Luminick, who's the guy used to seeing reviewing things. Instead, we have Will Joyner, who's another staff writer at the same paper as Lou Luminick, who gave the film one and a half stars. I don't know that Will Joyner was a big fan of the Transformers. Seemed to at least understand the plot but criticizes the inane and inaudible dialogue and the unrelenting action, which to me sounds amazing. He also said the rock score was mediocre, and I think he's wrong. But he sums it up well at the end. He says, It doesn't much matter, though. The youngest comparison shoppers in your household will undoubtedly demand to see the latest form that their robot toys have taken. All you can do is make sure they've sampled the far superior flight of the navigator first. That's your opinion, Will Joyner, and unfortunately, it was the opinion of a lot of other reviewers at the time. The breakdown from big publications is pretty bleak. Variety called it pure headache material. The New York Times called it an obnoxious animated feature. Dallas Morning News said it was utterly uninspiring. The Palm Beach Post said, even with an all-star cast doing the voiceovers and a rock music score, this is still nothing more than a ripoff of a successful toy line. I think they missed the point. That is not a ripoff. It is a successful toy line. Eh, people didn't really understand at the time. So it wasn't very well received, but it would improve over time. 
And part of that is nostalgia. Certainly nostalgia softens things. But at the same time, when you're given a little distance, you can appreciate the world in which this show was made and appreciate what they had to do to make it. I think adults now also grew up with this genre, unlike people reviewing it in the 80s who had no context. So it's easier for us to be fans of this now. And there's lots of reasons to be fans of it. One thing would be the music. And the film has a fun score that was provided by Vincent DeCola. Born in 1957, he's a composer, arranger, and keyboardist. Worked on films like Rocky IV, Staying Alive, and Transformers the Movie. Ahead of his time in using sequencers on soundtracks, which he did on Rocky IV, although there were some complaints about that at the time. The Transformers the Movie soundtrack, though, would garner fans. People really liked it, and they liked Decola's work. And Decola has largely embraced that world, appearing at botcons and conventions for the Transformers. I think he would agree that his work on the Transformers exposed him to a bigger audience and helped to get his other music more attention. Worked for me. When I had heard about Decola at the time, I didn't know much, but later on when I would read about him, once the internet had come along, I started to listen to more of Decola's work and really appreciate it. Now, while his score is fun, most people are going to know the Transformers from the Transformers, the movie, original motion picture soundtrack. It would get released on LP and cassette and eventually CD, eventually getting re-released, and two singles would get released based on the film. One would be The Touch, as performed by Stan Bush, which is the lead-off track on the album, and then, of course, Dare to be Stupid by Weird Al Yankovic. There's ten tracks in the original release. The Stan Bush music, like The Touch and Dare, stand out, but also you have the Transformers theme performed by Lion and the aforementioned Dare to be Stupid by Weird Al Yankovic, which is a takeoff on Devo. And according to Devo, one of the best Devo songs not written by Devo. In 2007, a 20th anniversary edition was released. In addition to the 10 tracks I mentioned, they also added four more tracks that were provided by Vince DiCola. That's a really good one to get your hands on if you can. Now, The Touch, which was written by Stan Bush, was actually inspired by a line from the film Iron Eagle and was written for the Sylvester Stallone film Cobra, but wasn't used there. But it would be very famous when it was chosen to be a big part of Transformers the movie. It would get further success when it would be revived and brought back into the cultural mainstream when it was used in the film Boogie Nights in 1997 when the main character in the film, Dirt Diggler, is trying to record a single, hoping to sell it. Transformers fans who were watching the film at the time were shocked, I certainly was, to hear him start to sing it, because the film takes place in 1983, but the song doesn't come out until 1986. So is Dirk Diggler the person who wrote The Touch? It's just sort of a fun Easter egg. Last night I journeyed backwards in time to the medieval world of Dark Tower. In this amazing game, I had to find three keys, lay siege to the tower, and defeat the enemy within. Each move was a challenge. The computer kept track, giving me secret information, pictures, sounds, surprises. Then, ahead of my opponent, I made my move. The battle was joined, and I was victorious. Dark Tower, from MB Electronics. One of the things that would help to grow the fandom of the film was getting it out on VHS very quickly. It was released in 1987 on VHS, Laserdisc, and Betamax in North America by Family Home Entertainment. 
one of the things the home video release does is try to make it more family friendly by removing a little bit of profanity from the film. Rhino Home Video would re-release the film on VHS in 1999, and then in 2000, the first DVD. Other people would do some releases, and there'd be some fun commentary tracks, all that stuff. But my favorite releaser of such things is Shout Factory. They did a 30th anniversary DVD in Blu-ray in 2016, and then in 2021, they did a 35th anniversary 4K Ultra release. If you're going with things and you have the option, you're not a big fan of VHS, I would look for what Shout Factory does. They usually release a quality product. Because the Transformers was also big in the UK and Japan, they would get releases there. The UK release is very similar to the US release, although different companies were involved. The film wasn't a big hit, but they were able to reuse a lot of the film on TV. They did a five-part broadcast where they broke up the film, airing it in 1989. It would then go into regular syndication on the TV series, and the film itself would also start to get played in its complete form. Off the screen, the film would get adapted in the comics. There would be a comic adaptation of the film by Marvel in 1986 that came out at the same time as it was in the theater. It differs slightly because it was based on a non-finalized version of the script of the film. I never brought myself to read this version, even though I owned it for a long time. I had seen the movie, and it took a couple of years before I checked it out. The U.S. comics at the time didn't pay much attention to the characters and mythology of the film. In the U.K., though, they took much fuller advantage and brought in characters and plots from the movie into their comics. The Transformers movie is important to the Transformers universe. It introduced concepts that would have effects on the Transformers moving forward in both the movies and the comics. And when the cartoon had gone off the air and you wanted to watch the Transformers cartoon, good luck finding episodes if you hadn't recorded them. But the Transformers the movie was available. So if you wanted to be introduced or reacquainted with the Transformers, there it was. And so it became the gateway for original Transformers when it was very difficult to get your hands on the series. I would argue most importantly for a generation of Transformers fans, it was the death of Optimus Prime that's going to stand out for them. To some people, it was a very emotional experience and unexpected because the show was kind of light and they were injecting something different, something very new. And if you were to ask me why I remember this film all these years later, is it because it has some great music or great animation, it's going to be the death of Optimus Prime. It is a reference point in my life and my childhood when a beloved character, a toy that I had been so familiar with, was on the big screen, killed in front of me. It is something I will never forget. And because of that, I think this film is maybe the most important part of the Transformers mythology. It showed that these characters could have an emotional connection and an emotional impact beyond the joy of the toys and the growing mythology of the comic books. And so if you're a fan of the Transformers or are looking for something interesting to watch, I hope you check it out.
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Mastodon. At Twitter, you can follow me at twitter.com slash retroist. And at Mastodon, I'm at retroist at mastodon.social. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so by giving it a five-star review wherever you download the show. It's really those five-star reviews that help people find the show. So if you can give one, I'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to further support the show, you can drop by Patreon. I'm at patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show for just a few bucks a month get bonus tracks, bonus scans, bonus episodes, and access to the Retroist Discord, the coolest retro community on the internet. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This has been a retrospective. Goodbye.